seated this morning. So grateful for what the Lord is doing in the church. If you're a guest here today, my name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Eastgate Church. I'm so glad that you're here with us today. After singing about how there's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain and set us free, um, with this being the Sunday before Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday, we wanted to kind of hit pause on, on everything and focus on the sacrifice and the price that Jesus paid for us. It's one thing to give shouts of praise and it's one thing to say that he set us free, but I don't think that we could ever take for granted the tremendous price that was paid for you and for me. So today I'm just going to tell you up front, it's going to be a little heavy because there's no way you can talk about what Jesus went through as a payment for our sin without it being heavy, without it being a little graphic. So I will say this, if you have wee little ones in here, uh, I'm going to tell you straight up, it's going to be PG-13 because of the graphic nature of some of the stuff that we're talking about today. So just heads up parents, we have a wonderful children's ministry for them to go to this morning. Little ones that are nursery age, we have a wonderful nursery for them to go to uh, as well. But you are the parent, so you can make that choice on whether or not you want your kids to sit in here today. No problem at all. Feel welcome to keep them in here if that's what uh, you, you feel like you need to do. But I'm just giving you the heads up. It's going to be a little gory because we're going to talk about exactly what Jesus went through. I'm going to read you some accounts today that will be, um, if you've never heard this before, it's going to give you a new perspective. It's going to give you a completely new perspective on the price that was paid for us. I'm excited about next Sunday. Uh, in our culture, we call it Easter Sunday. Truth be told, it's Resurrection Sunday. We're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And Easter bunnies are cute. Easter eggs are fun to let the kids get out there and hunt. But an Easter bunny did not crawl up on that cross and die for you. And he sure didn't raise from the dead. So I um, just want to make sure we understand what we're celebrating. If you do Easter bunny stuff, nothing wrong with that. If you do Easter egg stuff, nothing wrong with that. We're going to do that next week with e-kids. Listen, if you have children or know someone with children. They're going to have so much fun in E-Kids next Sunday. It's going to be amazing. Uh, so they're, they're having all kinds of games and prize giveaways back there. Uh, we went big and we got some bounce houses and some inflatable stuff for them to play on. Uh, it's gonna, they're going to have a blast. They're going to do a mini Easter egg hunt. But every step along the way, they're going to hear the story of the resurrection on their level. And we're going to give them Jesus. It's going to be an awesome day. It's going to be an awesome day in here. It's going to be a powerful day. Great day of celebration. So let me encourage you with all of my heart to invite, invite, invite. Uh, if there was a subtitle for today's message, it would be invite everyone you possibly can to Easter service next week. Uh, if you look in the back, we already have chairs that, uh, that are in place and ready for us to put out for our extra guests next Sunday. So we are prepared and ready to see God do something powerful. And I tell you, as always here at this church, we're going to give them Jesus. We're going to give them Jesus, and it's going to be a very, very powerful celebration of what Jesus has done. But there was a road that Jesus traveled to get to the resurrection. Before he came back with the keys of death, hell, and the grave, he very literally had to walk through hell on earth to get there. I want to start today by reading Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, starting in verse 6. It says, You see, at just the right time, when we were all still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Praise God for that. You know, he didn't die for the cleaned up, pretty looking people. He didn't die for the people that at least at face value have it all together. Listen, I'm there to tell you, if you're jacked up, you're in the right place. If you've got issues, you're serving the right Savior. If you've got room to grow, that's awesome because there's grace to cover it. I love that Jesus died for us just the way that we were. I also love that he loved us enough and too much to leave us in that condition. Very grateful for the heart of God. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. What a powerful sentence is about to follow. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Guys, we can never take that for granted. Yeah. 
ever. At a worst of worst, Jesus died for us. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus got together with the disciples. They had what was called um, the Last Supper. We'll be taking communion uh, towards the end of service today in honor of that to remember the price that Jesus paid. After that, Jesus and the disciples went to a garden called Gethsemane. In Matthew chapter 26, we'll pick up what happened there. Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Have you ever been there before where you're just carrying so much weight at one time that your soul literally was burdened to the point of death? That's where Jesus was. Not only was he looking at what was set ahead of him, he was carrying the weight. Can you imagine the last second temptations that were running through his mind as he was on the eve of what he was about to face? Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground, and he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. I love this because it shows the humanity of Jesus in this moment. Having known what he was about to experience, he was just double-checking. Father, is there any other way? Is there any other thing we can do? And then he lands on this, not my will, but yours be done. I love that. I love, I love that Jesus resolved to do what needed to be done. Guards come in. Judas gives the fatal kiss to Jesus on the cheek. They take Jesus into custody. And around midnight begins one of the most brutal experiences that a human being has ever walked through in all of history. Jesus is drugged from the garden to a makeshift trial. And between midnight and maybe around 7 o'clock or so in the morning, give or take, um, Jesus experiences having to stand trial for six times. Six times he stood trial. Six times. The beginning was some of the religious leaders. Second meeting was with Caiaphas. Third meeting with the Sanhedrin, which was pretty much the religious supreme court of the day for the Jews. And after they were determined to sentence him to death, he was sent to Pilate and tried, and then sent to Herod, and then tried, sent back to Pilate where Pilate had that famous washing of his hands, said, this guy's blood is not going to be on my hands. It's going to be on your hands. It's a very long night. After he stood trial, Jesus was dragged into a courtyard where he was blindfolded, where his beard was ripped out, I think we read over that too quickly sometimes to appreciate how painful that is. Well, he had his beard ripped out. Rip out a beard. Ladies, I know that's difficult for you. Look at a guy next to you with some facial hair. Give it a yank and watch what he does. You'll see that it's painful. His beard was ripped out. He was beaten at least three times that we know of with uh, fists, hands, and rods at least three times that we know of, and they put a crown of thorns on his head. Now, I brought a photo to give us some perspective on what these thorns probably would have looked like. They were not little thorns off a blackberry bush. They were not the thorns off of a rose bush. These things were big. Thorns on the bush that was probably used for the crown of thorns typically are within two to three inches long, sometimes longer. So when the guards put this crown of thorns on Jesus' head, it sunk in deep. It was incredibly painful. 
You know, the blood vessels are very close to the surface on the head. That's why sometimes when, you, when your kids fall and they leave a little scratch on the head, it gushes like there's a deep gash there. Um, Jesus' head, forehead, he would have been covered with blood at this point from the puncture wounds, from all of these thorns. It would have been incredibly painful. So he's been up all night. He stood trial six times. He's had his beard ripped out. He's been beaten at least three times brutally and a crown of thorns placed on his head. All the time he's being mocked and made fun of. And then comes time for the fun to really start. John 19 verse 1 says, Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. Again, that's one of those words that just does not do justice to what Jesus went through. He was not beaten with a whip like Indiana Jones would have had. <laughs> he was devastated with something called a cat of nine tails. Now, I brought you a picture to, of what this would have looked like. It was a short-handled whip with leather straps that went out somewhere between two and three feet. Purpose of that was so that the guards that were using it, or the Roman soldiers that were using this thing, could have very good accuracy, very good force and momentum on each lash that they gave to their victim. On the ends of this whip, there would have been pieces of glass, metal, wire, bone woven in so that when the guards would great accuracy would throw that whip it would bite into the flesh and take out chunks one lash at a time a very very painful ordeal um, when Jesus would have been whipped what they would do this is pretty common they would have tied him to a post that looks something like this and the guards would have started the top of the back and work their way down to the legs. It was one of the most brutal things that a person could go through next to crucifixion itself. I'm going to read you an account written by Rick Renner um, on his study of what happened during the scourging or the whipping that the Roman soldiers would have done. As I'm reading this, I want you to look at this picture on the screens behind me and around the room. It says the word scourged was one of the most horrific words used in the ancient world because of the terrible images that immediately came to mind when a person heard this word. So let me tell you a little bit about the process of scourging and what it did to the human body. I believe this explanation is important so that you understand more completely what Jesus endured before he was taken to be crucified. And it's one thing to say thank you Jesus for your sacrifice. It's another thing to understand what that sacrifice was. It says when the decision was made to scourge an individual the victim was first stripped completely naked so his entire flesh would be open and uncovered to the beating action of the torturer's whip. Then the victim was bound to a scourging post. His hands were tied over his head to a metal ring and his wrists were securely shackled to that metal ring to restrain his body from, mo from movement. When in this locked position, the, enemy, or the, the victim couldn't wiggle or move around trying to avoid the lashes, they were locked in place as the whip went across their bare back. Romans were professionals at scourging. They took special delight in the fact that they were the best at punishing a victim with this brutal act. Once the victim was harnessed to the post and stretched over it, the Roman soldier began to put them through unimaginable torture. One writer notes that the mere anticipation of the first blow would cause the victim's body to grow rigid, the muscles to knot in their stomach, the color to drain from their cheeks, their lips to draw tight against their teeth as they waited for the first sadistic blow that would begin tearing open their body. The scourging itself consisted of a short wooden handle with several 18 to 24 inch long straps, sometimes up to three feet long straps of leather protruding from it. The ends of these pieces of leather were equipped with sharp, rugged pieces of metal, wire, glass, jagged fragments of bone like we discussed earlier. 
This was considered to be one of the most feared and deadly weapons of the Roman world. It was so ghastly that the mere threat of scourging could calm down a crowd or bend the will of the strongest rebel. Not even the most hardened criminal wanted to be submitted to the viciousness of being beaten by a Roman scourge. Most often two torturers were utilized to carry out this punishment simultaneously lashing the victim from both sides. These dual whips struck the victim. The leather straps with their jagged sharp cutting objects would work their way over the bare back. Each piece of metal wire, bone or glass would cut deeply into the victim's skin and into their flesh and eventually deep into the muscles, shredding the muscles and sinews. Every time the whip pounded against the victim, those straps of leather curled torturously around their torso, biting painfully, deeply into the skin of the abdomen, the upper chest. As each stroke lacerated the sufferer, he tried to thrash about what was unable to because the wrists were firmly held to the metal ring above his head. Every time the torturer struck the victim, the straps of leather attached to the wooden handle would cause multiple lashes as the pieces of metal, glass, and wire and bone sank into the flesh and then raked across the victim's body. Then the torturer would jerk back with force, pulling hard in order to tear whole pieces of human flesh from the body. I know that's kind of gross, but that's what happened. They were literally ripping chunks of meat off of Jesus. The victim's back, back of the leg, stomach, upper chest, and face would soon be disfigured by the blows of the whip. Historical records describe a victim's back being so mutilated after a Roman scourging that his spine would actually be exposed. Others recorded how the bowels of victims would actually spill out through the wounds created by the whip. The early Christian historian Eusebius wrote, the veins were laid bare, the very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. The Roman torturer would so aggressively strike his victim that it wouldn't take time. They wouldn't even take time to straighten out the whips. They would just go until they were finished. It was not uncommon for the straps to be full of human flesh from the whipping. The victim's body would be mangled. If the scourging wasn't stopped, the slicing of the whip would eventually fillet the victim's flesh completely off of their body. Y'all still with me? Thank God for his sacrifice. So many blood vessels sliced open by the whip, the victim would begin to experience profuse loss of blood and bodily fluid. The heart would pump harder and harder, struggling to get blood to the parts of the body that were profusely bleeding. But it was like pumping water through an open water hydrant. There was nothing left to stop the blood from pouring through the victim's open wounds. Frequently, the victim's heartbeat would become so irregular that they would go into cardiac arrest. According to Jewish law, the Jews were permitted only to give 40 lashes to a victim, but Jesus was not beaten by Jews. He was beaten by Roman soldiers. So the Romans had no limit, so it's highly probable that Jesus could have received more than 40 lashes. The Jews put a limit on 40 because they knew much past that a person would be killed. Then they found that usually the 40th lash was too much for an individual and they would die. So they bumped it down to 39. That's why you see Paul talking about receiving lashes. 40 minus 1, or the 39 lashes that Paul received. Not unlike this, but it's highly likely that Jesus received more. Isaiah 52, verse 14, gives a prophecy about Jesus. It says, Just as there were many who were appalled by him, that word appalled means shocked and disgusted. It means that when they saw him, they looked back in disgust and shock. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. 
So as a whip went around his torso, to his stomach, to his chest, to the sides of his face, quite probable that there really wasn't much left of Jesus at the end of this. So disformed, so swollen from the trauma of the wounds, he would not be recognizable as a human. Some other prophecies about Jesus that happened during that night and into the morning. Jesus was taken into custody around midnight, stood the trials, went through the beatings. He was crucified. We know from Scripture around 9 o'clock in the morning, and he died around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Psalm 22.1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You are so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish. Psalm 22.16, another prophecy. Dogs surrounded me, a pack of villains encircles me, they pierce my hands and feet. Psalm 22.18, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. All of these fulfilled at the crucifixion. These prophecies were made over a thousand years before Jesus fulfilled them. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, there are three prophecies listed here that Jesus fulfilled, every one of them. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Can you imagine being the creator of the universe? who spoke the world into existence, who could have said one word and ended it all and started it all over again, choosing to be subjected to that kind of torture and torment, choosing to literally be ripped apart. It's beyond me. If I have the power to keep myself from being injured or hurt, I'm going to exercise that power. You know, um, Jesus chose to endure. He chose to endure. And that's important to understand. He was not a victim. He was not a victim. He was not overpowered. His will was not destroyed. He did, he did not tap out and say, okay, guys, you got me. Let's go ahead and start this thing. No, he chose to endure all of it. For us. It's hard for me to go through this without getting emotional because he did all of this while we were still sinners. He did all of this while we were lost, lost, and as far away as, from him as we could possibly be. After he was whipped, he was taken away to be crucified. Crucified comes from two Greek words. Um, cruci, which means cross. And then the action part of it, phi, means to fasten to. So he was fastened to cross. That's where crucifixion comes from. Uh, side note, too, the word excruciating that we use to describe pain. It's excruciating pain, the root word for that comes from crucifixion. When Jesus was crucified, probably the Passion of the Christ has been the most accurate movie to date to capture what Jesus went through. But they would have driven spikes through his hands, not really through his hands, but through his wrists. I've got a photo to show you how the nail would have gone. It would have been about a five-inch nail or spike. It would have gone through his wrist. They would have done it. If you feel your hand, you can kind of feel the soft part of your hand there right around the wrist. That's where that spike would have gone so that when they had you up on the cross, the nails would not rip through the skin and through your hands. They would have tied the um, forearms or near the wrist down to the post so that later on when the shaking and convulsions would have started from dehydration and cramps and asphyxiation 
that the people would not shake themselves free from the cross. Um, so they had to take steps to make sure that when that happened, you were up there and stuck. When they nailed your feet to the cross, um, I'll read an account here in just a moment, but know that that was no small thing either. They were very surgical. I know these vision picture here is a little blurry. It's a little more clear on the screens. Pretty precise with that so that it would go through the foot and hold in the bone and not tear out through the flesh when they were pushing down on their feet to try to raise up to take a breath. It was very painful. It was very calculated. Everything they did during a crucifixion was done to exact the most amount of pain and discomfort that they could on an individual. When you were crucified, they were, you were put into, they, they had a few positions that they would put people into because the Romans were sadistic. But when you were crucified, they would put you in a position like this. The twist ensured muscle cramps. It also ensured that there would be pressure on the lungs and breathing would become difficult. So the whole time you were on the cross, not only did you have the pain of the spikes, not only did you have the pain of exposure, bleeding out, um, you were slowly suffocating the entire time that you were up there. Let me read you an account while this photo stays up on the screen. This again is Rick Renner, who is it? He's a phenomenal Greek scholar. It says, because Israel hated the occupying Roman troops and insurrections that frequently arose among the populace as a deterrent to stop people from participating in these revolts, crucifixion was regularly practiced in Jerusalem. By publicly crucifying those who attempted to overthrow the government, Romans sent a strong signal of fear to those who might be tempted to follow in their steps. Mind you, all of the charges against Jesus were false. Pilate stood up there and said, there, I find no fault with this man. He's innocent. And yet Jesus received one of the worst or the worst punishment that he could have received for being an innocent person. So when the crossbeam was dropped into the groove, actually let me back up. Once the offender reached the place where the crucifixion was to occur, to occur, he was laid on the crossbeam he carried with his arms outstretched. Then the soldier would drive a five-inch iron nail or spike through each wrist onto the crossbeam. After being nailed to the crossbeam, the victim was hoisted up by a rope. The crossbeam was dropped into the notch on the top of the upright post. When the crossbeam was dropped into the groove, the victim suffered excruciating pain as his hands and wrists were wrenched by the sudden jerking motion. Can you imagine what that would feel like? Then the weight of the victim's body caused his arms to be pulled out of their sockets. Josephus writes that the Roman soldiers, out of rage and hatred, amused themselves by nailing their prisoners in different postures and positions to make the pain and suffering beyond imagination. When the victim was nailed to the cross, the nails were not driven through the palms of his hand, but through his wrists. Once the wrists were secured in place, the feet came next. First, the victim's legs would be positioned so that the feet were pointing downward with the soles pressed against the post on which the victim was suspended. A long nail would be driven between the bones of the feet, lodged firmly between those bones to prevent it from tearing through the feet as the victim arched upward, gasping for breath. In order for the victim to breathe, he had to push himself up by his feet, which were nailed to the vertical beam. However, because the, pressure of his, because the pressure on his feet became unbearable, it wasn't possible for him to remain long in this position, so eventually he would collapse back into the hanging position. As the victim pushed up and collapsed back down over and over again over the long periods of time, his shoulders would eventually dislocate and pop out of joint. Soon after, um, soon the out of joint shoulders were followed by elbows and then the wrists. 
these various dislocations cause the arms to be extended. Listen to this now. These various dislocations would sometimes cause the arms to be extended up to nine inches longer than usual, resulting in terrible cramps in the victim's arms, legs, muscles of the back and stomach, making it impossible for them to push themselves up any longer to breathe. When he was finally too exhausted and could no longer push themselves up, on the nail in their feet, the process of, of asphyxiation began. Jesus experienced all of this torture when he was dropped down the full weight of his body on the nails that were driven through his wrists in excruciating pain up and down his arms, registering horrific pain in his brain. Added to this torture was the agony of, con of constantly grating his back up and down the post. Now remember Jesus went through the scourging so there was nothing on his back but bloody muscle and exposed tendons. Up and down the cross he would have to drag his back as he lifted himself up. Due to the extreme loss of blood and hyperventilation the victim would begin to experience severe dehydration. We can see this process in Jesus' own crucifixion when he called out, I thirst, in John 19, 28. Several hours after his torment, the victim's heart would begin to fail. Next, his lungs would collapse, and excess fluid would begin filling the lining of his heart and lungs, adding to the slow process of asphyxiation. So when the Roman soldier came to determine whether or not Jesus was alive, and he thrust the spear into Jesus' side, one expert pointed out that if Jesus had been alive when the soldier did this, the soldier would have heard a loud sucking sound caused by the air being inhaled through the fresh wound in his side and into the chest. The Bible tells us that water and blood mixed together came out, pouring forth from the wound. It's evidence that Jesus' hearts and lungs had shut down and were filled with fluid. It was enough to convince the soldier that Jesus was dead. Up all night, six trials, beaten three times, his beard ripped out, a crown of thorns shoved onto his head, flesh ripped off of his body from this cat of nine tails, then carried his cross as far as he physically could to the place of his crucifixion. naked and exposed the whole time. Where he went through what I just described to you. Now take all of that and you're the son of God and have the weight of the sin of all humanity placed on you in that moment while you were hanging on the cross being mocked And having your Father in heaven having to look away from you because of the sin that was just placed on you. You never had a moment in your life where you felt that alone. But he did it. He did it for you, and He did it for me. For you and for me. Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 2, reads like this. It says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, Scorning its shame, sat down the right hand of the throne of God. It says he did it for the joy that was set before him. He didn't have to do any of that. He chose to do all of it for you and for me to pay the price for our sins. There's no shortcut to the sacrifice that had to be made for you and for me. 
It says, for the joy set before him. Wow. Because in that moment, he looked out over eternity. He saw you and he saw me. And he said, they're worth it. He was the ultimate sacrifice. The price that he paid, even in this description, is unimaginable. Unimaginable what he went through. As far as we know in history, now I could be wrong, but as far as we know, Jesus was the only person to be scourged with a cat of nine tails and crucified. It's usually one or the other. Jesus received both. Religion threw its weight towards him. The enemy threw his weight at him. Every time he was tempted, Jesus overcame. Every time there was a moment for victory, Jesus seized the victory in the moment. Everything that Jesus did was on his terms. He chose to do it. That's why when he was on the cross breathing his last breath, you know what he said? It is finished. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When Jesus passed from this life to the next, he did it on his terms in complete control of what was happening. He allowed it to take place. He allowed it to take place for you and for me. Because he knew that there was no way for us to get out of the sin that had entangled us. That there was no hope for us. If we could have earned salvation on our own, Jesus never would have had to die on the cross. But because we were in a place we couldn't get out of, we couldn't get back to him. He said, I loved you too much to leave you where you are. If you can't get to me, then I'm going to come to you. And he came here on this earth and gave his life as a sacrifice for us. Why? Because he knew, he knew that we would try to find hope in the bottle of a bottle and it wouldn't work because he knew that we would try to find hope in a bottle of pills and it would not satisfy. He knew that we would try to heal the hurt in our heart by jumping from one relationship to the next and it would never quench what was missing inside of us. He knew that the only thing that could reconnect us and the Father in heaven was his sacrifice. Amen. And he did it just so he could hang out with us for eternity. I love that we serve a God that doesn't give us 10,000 hoops that we have to jump through to try to earn our way into right standing with him. I love that we serve a God that sent his own son to pay that price for us, that covers us in grace, that clothes us, the Bible says, with robes of righteousness, that we give God our sin. And through Jesus, we get this robe of righteousness cleansed by his blood. We don't earn it. All we have to do is accept it and then start the beautiful journey of a relationship with him. Did you realize before today what Jesus went through for you? It is more than just something preachers say at the end of a church service. It's more than a quick little get out of hell free card that you get or fire insurance like people used to call it when I was growing up in church. It's so much more than that. Jesus literally gave it all. Paid the ultimate price so you could be free from sin. Next week we celebrate his resurrection, but we cannot forget the price that he paid. Because there is no resurrection without a crucifixion. But praise God, after the crucifixion came the resurrection. Whew. The keys of death, hell, and the grave, the Bible says that Jesus came back with. That means that he didn't just die to pay the price for your sin. That means that he came back with the power and the authority necessary to set you completely free from your sin. Overcame it all. We're remembering the sacrifice of Jesus today. I just think it's appropriate to give us an opportunity. Maybe there's some of us in this room that 
you've never had Jesus become your Savior and Lord, you've never asked Him into your heart, you've never accepted the forgiveness that freely comes through Him, maybe you haven't, it's been a while and you need to get that relationship back on track with Him. I want you to do me a favor this morning, heads bowed, eyes closed, no one looking around. I want to ask, I want to ask a question. How is your relationship with Jesus? So why did Jesus come and go through all those horrible things and die in such a horrible way? The reason why he endured it, <laughs> the joy set before him was you and me, but he endured hell on earth so that we would not have to endure hell for eternity. He died to set us free from that sin, to restore to restore that relationship between us and his Father in heaven. Maybe you're here today, say, Pastor Josh, my life is just jacked up. It has fallen apart, and I'd say that this is the best place on the planet for you to be right now. Jesus specializes in putting together broken lives. He specializes in putting together broken hearts. He specializes in restoring families. He restores marriages. He heals all that junk on the inside. You don't have to try to bury it. You don't have to cover it up. Maybe today you can get complete and total healing. Jesus died for that too. Are you ready to step into eternity and stand before the judgment seat of God because we're all heading that direction now the good news is that you don't have to think about that day with dread or fear or regret you can go into that moment with confidence knowing that you're covered by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus is Jesus Lord and Savior of your life I'm not saying did you pray a prayer 20 years ago and you thought you're good with God I'm not even saying do you go to church do you have a real relationship with Jesus? There's a big difference. I want to give you that opportunity. If you're here today and you say, Pastor Josh, man, my walk with God is not where it needs to be. I'm choosing to live in repetitive sin, and I'm not living the lifestyle that God has called me to live. And I had to be honest. I got no relationship with God. I'm talking to you today. If that's you, when I count to three, I want you to lift your eyes up and look at me. Now, I'm not going to embarrass you or single you out or anything. I just, I want you to have a moment of confrontation where you say, you know what? I need to make a change in my life. I want you to lift your eyes up at me when I count to three in a moment. I want you to do that, and I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. We're going to repent of this sin. We're going to get Jesus in the spot that he needs to be in, and we're going to get this relationship with God right. Maybe you're wa watching online right now, and, and I'm telling you, don't disconnect from this moment. This moment is for you. Pastor Josh, I need to get some stuff right with Jesus today. If that's you, when I count to three, lift your eyes up and look at me. Heads bowed, eyes closed all over this place. If it's you on three, lift them up and look at me. Here we go. One, two, three lift them up and look at me if that's I see yours I see yours I see yours I see yours praise God I see yours I see yours I see you right there I see you right there I see you in the back this is awesome this is life transformation these are eternities being changed if you haven't lifted your eyes yet and you know you need to and don't let this moment pass you by lift your eyes up and look at me right now come on if you haven't done it yet lift them up and look at me I see yours I see yours this is awesome this is awesome. Now let's let's do this, if we can. Let's all stand to our feet this morning. So many people lifted up their eyes. I love this. At this church, we've got a saying. We say at East Gate, no one walks alone. That's what a church is supposed to look like. We're supposed to have each other's back. We're supposed to lift each other up, pray for one another. You know. So we don't want you. To go through this moment alone either so I'm going to lead us in a prayer everyone in this room is going to pray this prayer after me if you lifted up your eyes 
and you said, I need to get some stuff right. I want you to pray this after me and mean it from your heart, okay? So it's in your heart that you believe, but the Bible also says it's through your mouth that you confess, okay, that Jesus is Lord. So we're believing in our heart right now, so we're going to do some confessing with our mouths, what the Bible says. So that's what we're going to do, okay? So everyone in this place, repeat this after me. Jesus, Jesus. thank you. For dying for me, for the price that you paid. Thank you for loving me before I loved you. Please forgive me for the sin in my life. I repent of it. That means I turn away. I don't want it. I want you. Thank you for saving me. Jesus, you are my Lord, and you are my Savior, and I promise to do my best one day at a time, one step at a time, to draw closer to you. Thank you so much for saving me. In your name, amen. Let's give God a big shout of praise for what just happened in the place. more to do today. Listen, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, welcome to the family. Yes. If you prayed that prayer and it's been a long time since you've really been serious about God, let me say this, welcome back home. Yes. Welcome back home. We're so glad that you're here. Now listen, um, you're going to want to be connected to a church that's going to help you grow. Now I'm just telling you, we will do everything we can to see you grow spiritually. We will do everything that we can to just come alongside of you, help watch your back, to lift you up in prayer at Eastgate. No one walks alone. And I want to let you know that as a pastor, I'm committed to seeing you grow. All right. I'm committed to seeing you become who God has called you to be. So stick around. Next Sunday will be a great Sunday to come back. Easter Sunday, we talked about what Jesus went through today. Next Sunday, we're going to celebrate complete victory and what he did because he kicked the devil's butt up and down the street. Came back more than a conqueror. But the Bible does say it's good for us to pause from time to time to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. And that's what we're going to do by taking communion this morning. So ushers, if you would. Please go ahead and pass out the elements. Now, you'll see open trays with grape juice and uh, unleavened crackers or bread um, for you to reach in and grab. If you're not comfortable reaching in and grabbing open elements, we do have sealed communion uh, cups. So the bread and, and the grape juice and all that's in there. You just pop the seal. So we got you covered both ways. We know some people are still a little, uh, little cautious when it comes to these things. So if you prefer a sealed communion cup and elements, let the ushers know as they're distributing these this morning. As the ushers are passing all of this out on your tablets or devices, you can go to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, where we'll be reading. I'll go ahead and read as the ushers are passing this stuff out. Let's say, if Dave can get a cup and some crackers while he's playing a guitar, he is next level. Thank you, sir. First Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 23. It reads, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
just a little bit longer, make sure everyone's had an opportunity to be served. I think we're down to the last couple of people. Gentlemen, thank you. We have some of the best ushers ever at this church. One of the best security teams. Now, did anyone, anyone get skipped over? Anyone not have elements that needs communion elements this morning? You guys that are watching at home, let me encourage you. Maybe hit pause for a second and go grab some grape juice if you've got it in the fridge. Tear off a little piece of bread if necessary. I don't know that the importance is the focus of the type of elements that you're using so much as taking the moment to pause and remember the sacrifice of Jesus. One last time, everyone gets served that needs to be served this morning. That's We've got some people in the media booth back there. Keep a good eye on the sound man back there. They're notorious for grabbing more crackers than they need. Thank y'all for being here today. Everyone been served now? All right. If you would take the bread or the little cracker, whatever you've got. It's a whole lot more than just a little something to put in your mouth. We're remembering everything that I just read to you, everything that we just talked about, the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. So, Father, we thank you for sending your Son. Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice of your body that was given for us, for what you endured, for the joy that was set before you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Take the bread. Now for the cup, Father, thank you again for sending your son. Not just one drop of blood would suffice. And Jesus, you had to pour out everything. Thank you for not holding, any, holding anything back from us. Thank you for choosing to give your life, for choosing to suffer for choosing to be that sacrificial lamb that covered the payment for our sin. We give you praise. We give you thanks, Father. Amen. Let's take You can take your cups, put them in the seat next to you. The ushers will get them after service, so don't worry about that. just seemed appropriate to give a little bit of worship to the Lord after remembering the price that he had paid for us. So I've asked the worship team to lead us in a song just giving thanks and honor to the Lord for what he's done. So if you would, please, let's all stand again this morning. Let's just lift up our hands and begin to give the Lord thanks for the price that he's paid everything that he's done because he alone is worthy thank you lord thank you lord jesus thank you father for your sacrifice thank you in your own words just thank him because he alone is worthy 